From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. This week it's our fall fun drive here at WFIU, so we'll share a couple of favorite stories from earlier this year. We'll talk with two farmers from a collective in Puerto Rico based in agroecology. And we'll drop in on an American professor living in Japan who's developed a practice of cooking in his office. That's all coming up, so stay with us. Hello, Renee. Hi, Kate. Got some news for us? I sure do, Kate. A proposed USDA rule could take away SNAP benefits for millions of people. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue announced the rule in July, saying some states are taking advantage of a loophole known as categorical eligibility. Over 3 million people, or 8% of SNAP participants, would lose benefits under the proposal. In addition, at least 500,000 children would lose access to school meals, according to a group of 15 Democratic senators, including all Democrats on the Senate Agricultural Committee. In addition, the Trump administration has proposed more stringent enforcement of the 90-day limit on food stamps for able-bodied adults who do not work at least 20 hours a week. Congress rejected similar proposals to limit SNAP benefits when it passed the 2018 Farm Bill. Some say the new rule could affect farmers' bottom lines, too, like in Kentucky and Indiana, where participating farmers' markets double the dollars for SNAP vouchers. According to Kentucky's Double Dollars website, the program redeemed $91,000 in 2018, giving more people access to fresh local foods and providing more money to local farmers. A coalition of 24 Kentucky attorneys filed a comment letter against the proposal. A program allowing temporary visas for seasonal farm workers from abroad is slated for significant changes soon. Congress established the H-2A visa program in 1986 to address seasonal worker shortages. Farmers who want to apply have to prove there is not enough local labor to fill the need. The U.S. Department of Labor proposed several revisions to the program's rules, which are set to go into effect on October 21st. The changes follow a White House proposal this spring that prioritized visas for skilled workers but did not address shortages of unskilled farm workers. Among the controversial changes are revisions to the way wages are calculated. Rules have long been in place to make sure the H-2A workers are paid a rate that is in line with what a domestic worker would get to prevent depressing wages. Critics are concerned that new rules may affect wages for workers in higher-paid occupations such as supervisors and construction workers on farms. There are other changes that affect how often worker housing is inspected. Farmers and ranchers once had to place ads in local newspapers to invite U.S. workers to apply before seeking farm workers. Now they can post the jobs on a Labor Department website instead. Public comment on the proposed changes closed on September 24th. These stories come to us from Taylor Killo and Chad Bouchard. Thank you, Renee. You are most welcome, Kate. My name is Marcella Lark, and I have been listening to WFIU since I moved here in uh, 2010, so that makes it, what, nine years? 
I like the news coverage, but mostly I, I like all the music. And I also really enjoy uh, Earth Eats. Uh, Kate Young has been a wonderful addition, and I listen to that pretty much every Saturday morning. Uh, my name is Marcella Lark, and I support WFIU, and I encourage you to do the same. If you've been listening to Earth Eats every Saturday, or most Saturdays, or Fridays on WFIU 2, or as a podcast, and you appreciate what you hear, we'd love to hear from you. Sometimes it feels like hollering out into the void. We know you're out there, but it's really nice to hear from you, maybe just once a year, like right now during our fall fun drive. We've got some fun thank you gifts, including a handsome new lunch tote. It's gray, it's insulated, roomy, and a stylish way to bring your lunch to work or school. And it lets everyone know that you support your public radio station, WFIU. Just log into WFIU.org slash donate and make a secure pledge of $7 a month or a one-time gift of $84, and the lunch tote is yours. Also yours is another year of great programming from WFIU made possible by your support. Thank you. Earlier this year, we shared recipes from a friend of mine, David Gann, who's been living in Japan for the past decade or more. I'm a full-time lecturer at a leading science university in Chiba Prefecture, near Tokyo. He has a long commute from his home in Saitama Prefecture, so he spends a lot of time in his office. I like to say that my work and studies do often keep me here very, very late. So late, in fact, that I don't actually leave. If you listen to WFIU a lot, you've probably heard this promo. This is David Gann, that guy that cooks in his office in Saitama, Japan. Maybe you missed the story the first time it aired. This week, you get a second chance. Basically, David got sick of eating out all the time, and he was worried that his health would suffer in the long term if he didn't start cooking some meals for himself using fresh ingredients. So he has a setup in his office now with an induction burner, electric kettles, a rice cooker, a toaster oven, and a microwave. He's got knives and cutting boards, colanders, a blender, and an air popcorn popper. He's even got a sink. He cooks all the time. He'll often make a week's worth of meals in one night and store them in his dorm-sized fridge. Let's listen while David Gann walks us through a typical cooking routine. I'm going to make two dishes. One is nabe, a traditional Japanese dish, and the other is tofu tortilla, which is decidedly not Japanese. I start by cutting three packs of tofu into quarter-inch strips and putting those into a colander to drain. The other two are for nabe, and I'll cut those into about one-inch cubes and put them on the other side to drain also. Now... Put on the fry pan and get out a package of the soup base, which I think does contain some chicken in this case. And I'll bring that to a simmer. I'll start cutting the vegetables, the carrots and the daikon or Japanese white radish first, since they take the longest to cook. 
And I'll cross-cut those carrots and then cut the larger daikon into quarters. Okay, so we are simmering now. And I'll slide all of that in. Next, I'll cut up one whole onion. Okay, so over here I've got this tofu that is drained. I'm taking out the slices and laying all those out into a kind of radial pattern and stacking them up as well as need be. And now setting the microwave onto the lowest setting. These are for the tortillas. I don't really cook with the microwave, but because this particular part is time consuming, I'm getting a little jump start here while my induction range and fry pan are occupied with the nave. The idea here is that since tofu contains protein, if heat is introduced, that protein will set up and will have a roughly meat-like consistency. And this will also help cook off a little more of the water I can pour off later. Alright, the nabe is well underway with the daikon softening now. And so I can add in these tofu cubes. And there they go. That'll bring the temperature down, so I'll increase that for just a minute until the, until the temperature stabilizes. Now I've chopped up some cabbage, and I'm going to work that in now. And now it's time to add the horenzo, or that is the spinach. It seems to be filled to capacity, but no, we can still manage to work in the bean sprouts, which will get steamed as the heat rises up from the broth. And I'll ladle on some of the broth as well. You might have noticed that I didn't use any seasoning or even salt, but I don't really tend to use it. Anyway, I'm sure that the soup base contains enough. Alright, so I'm now turning off the heat and setting the nabe off to the side to cool down to a temperature where I feel comfortable pouring it into this plastic bin. And so let's check on the tofu. Let's stop the microwave now and pour off the water. And we'll put it back in now and continue that at a low setting. All right, so the nabe has cooled down, so I can transfer that to the container and move that over to the other side. Okay, I'll crank up the heat on the uh, fry pan again and put in a little bit of olive oil and now lay in the tofu. After just a minute of searing like that, I'll turn the tofu to the other side and after that I'll back the heat way down to 800. Clean up a little as I go and now back that down even more to 500. Now this was the hardest part for me to learn. You don't want to burn the tofu, but you will if you have it on at 800. All we're trying to do here really is just lightly brown the outside and get the tofu to set up, and that just takes time. There's a lot of water to cook off. I've got three packages of tofu to work through, too, so this is a time to answer emails, read an article for research, or actually write some on my uh, doctoral thesis. Now the tofu seems sufficiently cooked, so as far as the induction range and fry pan goes, we're done here. I can rinse that out in my sink and 
wipe off the range and uh, the table surface and the floor around where I was cooking. I do like to keep my office clean. When we make the tortillas, I like to use fresh, uncooked green peppers and onions, so there's no need to cook those. Now it's just a matter of putting the clean and dry fry pan back on, toasting our tortilla at a low heat of, say, 300, while I add in some cheese, fresh cabbage, diced pepper, an onion, and, of course, the tofu. I've prepared most of my food for the entire week. I have the rest of the evening ahead of me to get some work done after dinner, of course. David Gann lives in Saitama Prefecture in Japan. I got the idea to feature him on the show when he told me that he listens to Earth Eats exclusively while cooking in his office. If you listen to Earth Eats while cooking, or gardening, or anything else, let us know you're out there. Make a pledge to the station at wfiu.org donate during our fall fun drive. Also, while you're online, you'll want to check out the photos of David's nabe and his office kitchen. You'll find that at eartheats.org. Production support comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at PersonalFinancialServices.net and insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Resch Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. We start to meet, to, to get together, to find a way to do farming together in 2015. In 2017, in May, yeah. that we made the agreements and everything, so we are just getting there. And then in September, the hurricane just came. And we received first Irma, and after two weeks, we received Maria. Marisa Reyes-Diaz is one of the founding members of Wakia. 
Huaquia Colectivo Agroecológico o Agroecology Collective. Huaquia means our or us in Taino language that is from our native Indians of the island. Huaquia is a farming collective in Puerto Rico based around the principles of agroecology. Marisa Reyes-Diaz and Stephanie Muzarate-Torres recently visited the Indiana University Food Institute to talk about their project. We are an agroecology collective, so we are farming, trying to imitate nature and how it works. Uh, agriculture is already a really invasive way to do how we eat, but uh, in agroecology we try to just imitate in the earth, but as well it has to it has to have a social connection, social integrated with the agroecology project. So we knew we had to have some sort of social component to our project. So we're going to farm and the community will eventually see we're growing stuff and they'll come to us because it looks pretty. So they'll come. But after the hurricane, people didn't need that much food as help for first response. So our project kind of went towards just building community. A lot of uh, people just needed to tell their experiences uh, after the hurricane. So we just sort of went towards what felt right, basically, which it was helping the community and other communities and other farmers helping in their farms. Because we didn't have, uh, barely had three months in the farm. So now, last December, is that we really started to grow food, finally. That was Stephanie. Marisa and Stephanie took an agroecology course together, which ended up being the spark for their collective. In the workshops, we took the agroecology course. We were 30 people going together into some small plot and building it into a food garden, into a food forest. And it just seemed kind of nuts to do it alone after the workshop was done. And it's it, for us, agroecology is not just farming or the... Uh, community as well. There's a lot of social injustice that the agroecology movement uh, stands up for or is the first response as well. Marisa noted that most of the food that's being produced in Puerto Rico using sustainable agriculture is going to restaurants because that's where the money is. At Wakia, they plan to produce food for restaurants and for CSAs, but also to make the food accessible to the people living in the community close to the farm. So the idea is not just to produce food is to produce for everybody. And for us as well. We, uh, need, yeah. to yeah, we need to eat. So the, the main industry in that area is tourism. So there's more restaurants and hotels and things like that. Yeah. More hotels, more restaurants that are not accessible for Puerto Ricans or obviously low-income Puerto mm-hmm. Ricans. That, that's the majority of what we have near our farm. We're in the north part of the island. It's about 10 minutes from the beach, but it's a low-income community, but it's not a low-income municipality. If you know, like, we have a lot of resorts, a lot of tourism, but it's not such of a paradise for Puerto Ricans who live there. So we have low-income communities. Uh, After the hurricane, they were one of the last ones that got their light, the last ones that got their streets clean, the last one that got water. After the hurricane, and after helping with the immediate needs of the community, Wakia got the word out about their collective using social media. There were organizations in the U.S. looking to offer direct assistance to everyday Puerto Ricans, 
and one of the brigades working with Wakia was organized by Science for the People. And they just got, went to the farm. We stayed in the farm for 10 days, and we don't have electricity or water. So we were camping, a lot of people. We were 15 people camping in the farm, so it was a lot. But we <laughs> but we did a lot. Uh, like at the end of the week, we were like, oh my God, this looks totally different from when it started. Uh, and we were able to do a festival, raise some funds, raise the awareness that we are there in the community. So the brigades have been awesome. So did you need to clear a lot of things from the land? We had to clean a lot. We had refrigerators, uh, beds, cars, you name it. We had cleaned before the hurricane, but then after the hurricane, it got oh, oh, again out of hand because everybody was just trying to throw everything away. I was imagining like a lot of brush and vegetation that you'd have to clear. But Also, yeah. also we have that yeah. because uh, the grass is six feet high and it's like a bambooish grass. So it's really when you try to cut it, it just the machete comes back to you. So in addition to the brigades and other volunteer groups, they hired nearby farmers with equipment to help clear the land. So you have cleared some beds or some rows yes, now. Yeah. And uh, what do you have growing at the moment? We have uh, banana, plantain, cassava, uh, beans. Uh, we get some corn, papaya, uh, ginger, uh, turmeric, shallots, tomatoes, sweet pepper, zucchini. I don't know how to name the gandules in English. It's like a, a type of bean? bean, but different. It's a very good one. Yeah. It's dried and cooked, like in rice. It's really for Christmas. It's a, we eat like arroz con gandules, yeah. rice and, and gandules. And we make the rice. And it's the best part of the <laughs> Christmas thing, yeah. What kind of seasonings? We made a sofrito that is a mix of onion, garlic, sweet pepper, uh, pepper, yeah, no one, uh, salt, oil, cilantrillo, cilantro. And that's all. We just put it in a, a, a blender, and we have the sofrito, and we use that to cook. Well, that, yeah, we use that not only for Christmas, but that's our like base. That's the base for every, every dinner, yeah. yeah. Sofrito, amazing. <laughs> the Wakia Collective has also maintained and nurtured the connections with the surrounding community. One of the workshops that we made in the community was a compost workshop. We invite them to separate everything that is uh, trash of the fruits, yeah, organic. And we pass every fr Friday, we pass by the houses and we collect all this uh, organic matter that they separate to do a compost, community compost in the in the farm. Kind it's of like a competition for them too. Yeah. Like, oh, who's having more compost or something like that. And so they're eating better because they want to eat fresh foods now. They don't have that much smell from the trash in their house. They spend less in their trash bags. Yeah. And then they feel like they're part of something bigger, yeah. that they're helping the island, they're helping the reconstruction of the island. And we have some exchange with them. We give them fresh compost for their plants, or we give them some tomatoes. Like, it's a really good, it's a compost program with the community. It's really good, it's, and it's going along great. Future plans for the farm include the installation of solar panels for electricity, a sustainable water source, 
buildings and infrastructure, and strengthening connections with the community. They also hope to find ways to make the farm sustainable financially, so that the five members of the collective don't need to hold down two or three additional jobs to stay afloat. You know, Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States, so just things that could put you into context of what is, why is it that we're doing what we're doing and why is it so hard. So basically, we can't vote for the president. We only have our representative in Congress, and he also can't vote. He only has a voice, so it's nothing. Stephanie also brought up the Jones Act, and what it means for Puerto Ricans in terms of their dependence on the United States. Though Puerto Rico's tropical climate makes it suitable for year-round farming, the island currently imports 80% of its food, mostly from the United States. All the peasants, all the people that do agriculture in Puerto Rico, they just get out from the farms and to work in industry and, and factories because what's the industrialization moment? So we lose a connection with the land. That's why we get so big percent of importations. And we are return, returning to the land. Farming in Puerto Rico, just farming, it's such uh, resistant, it's so powerful. If we have food, we have food security, and we are getting out of the system. So it has kind of all the yeah. things in it. We need at least sovereignty in our food, and then we can construct or build something different from the island. But we have to start with the food because it's, that's, it's a freedom for us, I think. That was Marisa Reyes-Diaz and Stephanie Muzerati-Torres of Wakia Agroecological Collective. Check our website for more information, eartheats.org. EarthEats team includes Aobon Binder, Chad Bouchard, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. EarthEats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Stephanie Monserrate Torres, Marisa Reyes Diaz, and David Gann.
production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. <laughs>